Welcome back to the Megatherium Club podcast. As always, my name is Sean, and I'm here with my pals Zach and Spencer, and we'll be your host today. We have an interesting episode today, and I really enjoyed researching for this topic. Spencer, would you like to tell our listeners what exactly they'll be hearing today? Yeah, so in last uh, la- in the last episode, I almost said last week as if we did this weekly, <laughs> but in the last episode, uh, I mentioned that I had someone reach out uh, named Simone who gave us, you know, a, a suggestion of, hey, do cryptozoology. Well, in that same uh, uh, email, I got pictures from the, I think it was the National Museum, uh, or the natural the National History Museum in D.C., the, you know, the Smithsonian one, and included were pictures of Simone's favorite animal, the Dunkleosteus, and that kind of prompted me to kind of start thinking about, ooh, that we could do an episode on that. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And after chatting with these two guys here, uh, I was like, okay, that was an animal that got a major nerf recently. So then we had the idea of, okay, what animals got major nerfs over time? And what do we mean by nerf? Well, an animal that started out as one vision and through scientific evidence has been changed significantly into something else. Well, we couldn't really find too many animals that were nerfed in terms of they got worse with science over time. So instead, we just decided to kind of focus on animals that generally just got major overhauls through new scientific evidence or, you know, um, scientific methods of uh, explaining something or measuring something. So, yeah, so that's today's episode. And I'll start us off with the one and only Dunkleosteus. So... The Devonian period, nicknamed the Age of Fishes, brought forth a group of armored fishes called the Placoderms, with the most recognizable being the Dunkleosteus. Now, the story of these guys begins, for us, in the 1860s, when the fossils of this massive armored fish were discovered in what is now known as Ohio. By an amateur paleontologist and hotel owner, I guess. That's, I, I saw that on the Wikipedia and I was, couldn't really find anything more on it. Uh, but J. Terrell. Terrell, yeah. However, it wouldn't be until the mid 20th century that these creatures would then again be kind of rediscovered and then named properly into their own genus, Dunkleosteus, after David Dunkel, the guy who rediscovered them. Uh, it, but the guy who named them was Jean-Pierre Lehman. Hold up. Uh, was was the guy that found them uh, also what the museum in Canada is named after? The Royal Tyrell Museum? Is it, is this, is it Tyrell or, ter, like, is that the name? Ter, Terrell, not Tyrell. Terrell, T-E-R-R-E-L-L. Which, uh, okay. you know, I'll, I the largest of the Dunkleosteus is Dunkleosteus Terrelli which is named after the original, original founder, uh, or discoverer, not founder. But no, so nope, no, no connection to Canada as far as I'm concerned. David Dunkel was one of the, was like one of the heads of the Cleveland Natural History Museum, and so he was kind of involved with Ohio, but, uh, you know, Canada adjacent, but not Canada, I guess. So. <laughs> but the Dunkleosteus roamed the seas from around 359 to... Uh, upwards of like 420 million years. It was kind of hard to find the, the earliest dates of them, but there are species that date around to 420 million years ago. But most Dunkleosteus you'll find it just before the Devonian extinction in the late Devonian. But either way, 
this is hundreds of million years ago, making Dunkleosteus one of the earliest known apex predators, which we'll bite into in a few. I hope people. I like that pun. Yes, thank you, thank you. Man. Wait, I, I don't get it. What? <laughs> so, yeah, let me let me talk about what that what my pun is based off of for those of for those in the audience who might not know what I mean. Zach, you'll probably get it in just a second. So many natural history museums around the world at least have some sort of cast or actual fossils of the Dunkleosteus, and most that you see are simply just the armored plating of the head of the fish, including the kind of guillotine-like jaws. And when I say guillotine, I mean they just look like not like bony knives that would snap together. So yes, so we'll bite into a few because we'll, we're you know, <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, uh, <laughs> wait, what? what? So I don't get it. <laughs> Still don't get it. So they they okay. I said we'll bite into we'll bite into the details in a little bit, as if I'm biting like the Dunkleosteus would do. Oh, okay. Bite, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah it yeah. was a really bad pun. Uh, but I wrote it out and I chuckled to myself, so I left it in, I knowing it. that it was bad. So anyway, these models, and the fact that most of the time when you see these models are just the head, and that's not necessarily by design. It's because only only about 5% of all of the known fossils from Dunkleosteus have more than just the skull. And even then, it's not very much beyond that. Um, it might be like... Uh, pectoral fin it might be you know um, some sort of pelvic fin or something like that very rare has there been like full just on um, full body fossils of them but there have been some and some that have been surprisingly well preserved in terms of like scale imprints and even some leftover meals that either the fish just regurgitated up or was still in the stomach but most of the time, you're only going to find the, the jaws or the, the rest of the kind of bony head to it. What separated these fish out, so during the, the, the Devonian period, these placoderms, these armored fish, were numerous. There was tons of them. They all had really weird body plans and shapes. Uh, evolution just looked at fish and said, let's experiment for a little bit. What separates out the Dunkleosteus is their unique feeding mechanism, and that these were some of the first fish to develop tin jaws. And by hinged, I just mean jaws that can move up and down like your jaws can today. And it's thought, it's there's some debate, but it's thought that the placoderms were essentially the beginnings of all jawed vertebrate animals, including your cat and humans. So we are all descendants of them. And some evidence of that shows that some placoderms and some Dunkleosteus like were the first fish to develop those pelvic fins which would later become the you know the legs of an animal yeah some some debate there whether you know we are directly evolved from them or we're like a, a sister to them but either either way they set the standard and essentially once jaws evolved obviously when you go out into any freshwater or uh, saltwater body of water you're going to find jawed fish the exceptions, the rare exceptions now, are the jawless fish. But you still can find jawless fish today, even in you know in the freshwater areas of the U.S. In you know like the mighty Mississippi, you might find lampreys, which kind of have a sucker-like mouth to them, 
and with like rows of circular teeth that allow them to kind of bite and latch on and kind of feed on other fish as a parasite. But for the most part, you know, any bass, salmon that you catch, they're going to be jawed fish, descendants of these other fish before them. But continuing on the unique feeding mechanism is all these bony plates that you see when you look at the skull, they all fit together and are hinged together with multiple muscle attachments and areas of essentially built up muscle so that one, they could rapidly open up their mouth to create a suction like a vacuum. So they open it up, some, whatever is right in front of their jaws will be sucked in. And then in that same instant, they can snap their jaws back down. And huh. the, it's thought, you know, through care, careful mathematical calculations that I have no idea how to begin to understand that the Dunkleosteus still probably has one of the strongest, if not the strongest bite force of any animal ever, which is crazy that in the first jawed fishes, they just went straight to the strongest ever that would exist. Um, but anyway, they would open up their mouth, suck something in, and then immediately slam it, and they would slam it, and whatever they had in their mouth would simply be crushed, whether it was the bones of another fish or, say, the armor of a free-swimming invertebrate like an ammonite, they would essentially just bite through it, and they could do that, and it was really effective. So Dunkleosteus just proliferated, and they were everywhere, tons of species, I think up to 10 species, that kind of lived all over the world. But the craziest part about that opening and closing is all of that can happened, or at least thought to have happened, within a half a second. So, with you know, you're just swimming by, and this you bump into this fish, and less than a second later, you're just dead. There's no, <laughs> you're gone. There's nothing left of you. You're just two halves floating, uh, you know, in into the water. So, yeah, but. At a certain size, these creatures would easily become one of the top predators in the area. Only vulnerable to what other creatures? And that's question posed to you guys. What do you think is the the other creatures that could get these that could, during this time? During the Devonian. Sharks. I'll, I'll give you a hint. Not quite. It's, uh, it's a kind of a trick question. Oh, the other... Uh, dunkleys. Yeah, yeah. Whoa. Just bigger, <laughs> bigger dunkleys. Yeah. That, that's pretty much it. Um, the, you know, there's, the, you know, the old saying, there's always a bigger fish. Well, there's always a bigger dunkley. <laughs> <laughs> and there has been evidence of dunkleys eating and feeding on other dunkleys of the same species because they've, they have found fossilized evidence of dunkleys that have bitten on to other dunklies just behind where that that bony head is uh the bony plates of the head end mm. and so it's like yeah this is definitely predatory hunting behavior of other species so yeah at some point they were the the basically the apex predator and being armored just allowed them to escape other things like early sharks and stuff like that and so, i I, yeah. I can imagine like their ability to kill something in half a second or less is too fast for these primitive fish brains to think oh that's my friend uh yeah. it was food oh 
don't shoot. Oh. That's <laughs> that was Timmy. Well, uh, that was Timmy, but Timmy's now uh, he's Dimmy now. Two, yum, yum, two yum. Timmies. Yeah. <laughs> two <laughs> Timmies. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I mean, I it, yeah, I, I would wonder what the the snap reflex was like if it was just so innate that anything that was in front of them they bit down at. They're extinct, so we'll, we'll we'll never know that question. So very good. But in terms of where these things actually lived, like I said, they lived all over the world. But more specifically, essentially, the larger the Dunkleosteus, the deeper that they lived, and huh. so they would live in some of the deepest part of you know not the not Marianas Trench deep, but deep deep waters, and what adults would essentially only come up to essentially mate, and there's some evidence that they would give birth in the shallows to live birth actually thanks to a specimen that was found in australia that there's potential evidence i saw this in a video potential evidence that they there was a fossilized umbilical cord inside of the dunkleosteus anyway kind of like uh, great white sharks yeah exactly but they would give birth in the shallows these smaller Dunkleosteus would live in nurseries amongst the shallows, and then as they got bigger, would hunt in deeper and deeper waters and go for bigger and bigger prey. And I think that makes sense for a lot of larger fish um, hmm. in the ocean. So now, now it comes down to how big were these things are. So when they were first described, essentially they were thought to be about nine meters or about thirty feet in length. Jesus, which is absolutely enormous of a fish but again i gotta go off the the theme of the episode something has to change now the fossilized jaws they don't change they're fo they're fossilized we've found lots of them you can't change that but the rest of the body we're not a hundred percent sure of for most of these species especially the biggest one the torelli uh, species which is the one that was up to 30 feet or at least thought to be 30 feet. Now, from a paper that came out a few years ago by Russell Engelman and some others, a new method of body size estimation suggests smaller sizes for Dunkleosteus torelli. So what did they do? Well, it's quite interesting. Instead of comparing the ratio of essentially what they did was they looked at the, the fossils that they had and they measured the difference, the distance between the end of the the skull bones and the eye area in a way and before they essentially how the body plans were estimated to be they would use other placoderms and that was it which again that's working off the fossil record and is not super reliable so what this team of scientists did was look at pretty much as many fish extinct and extent that they could and they measured the same distance and they graphed it and this graph was very strongly correlated with the length uh the distance between these two parts on the skull and then how long your body can be so the bigger the distance the bigger the body but there's there's a specific ratio that it has to fit for all these different species of fish and they're like okay if it just fits so well with all these other fish including placoderms that they measured then it probably has to be true for the Dunkleosteus. So instead of being around 30 feet, which if you want to kind of scale the largest, like great white sharks are 20 feet and most are at around 12 to 13 to 14 feet. So twice the length of a great white shark, they have now been nerfed down to about 12 feet long. 
So less than half of the original length estimate for these Dunkleosteus is what they probably were in reality based off these new measurement these new measurements. So what does this mean in terms of Dunkleosteus? That's a question to you guys again. What does it mean? Wait, does this mean that they're just like short, chunky donkeys with like giant heads? Yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah. <laughs> like a goldfish. Yeah. Like, like a goldfish <laughs> body rather than a great white. Exactly. They looked like big old armor plated, armor jawed goldfish. Hell what yeah. What color they were, we're not sure. Gold. Um, probably not gold. <laughs> yeah. That would be really cool. I mean, they could have been brightly colored, but we don't know. Um, most things that are that big aren't necessarily brightly colored. But anyway, uh, yeah, it doesn't mean a whole lot. And, you know, when you look up Dunkleosteus got nerfed, the first couple of things that pop up are like subreddits that are dedicated to paleontology. And they're like, this is so disappointing. I can't believe my favorite fish got chopped in half in terms of size. And then everybody in the comments is like, yeah, but it's like the head and the jaw size <laughs> yeah. is still the same. It's still a big fish. Yeah. It's just now we have a more accurate representation and it's still just as scary in its own way. Yeah, it doesn't really matter if it was like another 10 or 15 feet long. If that head could kill you, it's still going to kill you. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. I don't know. I have a I have a hard time seeing how the shorter version works cuz that head is so big and armored. It's got to be so heavy and you would need you would need a bigger body just to like hold that up wouldn't you well would you need a longer body though maybe it was like thick and robust and muscular but do you need 10 more feet of tail yeah i i think i i I think yeah you don't necessarily need the length for it it's it's not like a a animal on land where the front end is heavier now you got to balance it out like a like a theropod or something like that to propel it forward you would need a longer body at that I mean, you can, you know, move your tail back and forth more and then get enough propulsion to move yourself forward. Like if you're just like a short, chunky goldfish, that tail has got to be going a million miles an hour just to sort of like, I don't know, you, you know, like, uh, have you ever seen a blowfish like blown up and then it's like little fins are going a million <laughs> miles an hour? I, yeah, I see what you mean. I think I get you with that, but I, I don't know if the physics work on the same scale. Like at that length, at that size, like one tiny movement will move you that much more than one tiny movement when you're the size of a small blowfish or goldfish. But scaled up, it would be it would be relative, right? But I so well, see that's what I'm challenging is I don't know. Would it be relative? I'm I don't not I'm not like a biomechanical physicist. Maybe what's what's saying that these things were fast? If if they were if they were relying on just like a sensory to trigger their like and it's dead thing like it's it doesn't need to go fast actually if it's going fast it's probably less beneficial for it because it's not going to suck in that there's some debate about whether they were fast or not i'm just thinking from a caloric output standpoint like even if you don't need to move fast you need to move right and just to move like using a little tail and little fins that's going to take so much more energy to move that massive head compared to a really long sleek body right 
Well, I guess it's it's tail and fins could be the same size. It's just not as long. So there's some debate about whether how fast it was, whether it was a ambush predator, whether it was like a, you know, out swim or swim faster than your prey predator. And there's some evidence for both. More and more things like you'll find more evidence or more, you know, articles or whatever saying these guys were not very fast. But there's some other ones that are like, yeah, no, they they might have actually been pretty fast. But the thing that kind of drew me into this was was looking at pictures of all of the other fishes they compared it to. Some of the things that you might look like a bass or something like that. And I think what we get confused about is we look at the size. We when we look at the the skull of it, we're like, wow, that's some bony, like super heavy duty fish. But I think that makes us have a bias about how heavy it actually was because we're talking about the earliest bonied fish. Now we are armored. I don't necessarily know that it means it was like the heaviest thing in the, like the heaviest. Do, do you know what was uh, bioaccumulating in its, is that the right word? In its armor? Like what? Oh, in terms of like, you know, no, I don't. Um, I didn't find that. Um, but it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't anything special. It wasn't like, as far as I know, it wasn't like accumulating metals like some of the insects would do in its jaws. Oh, okay. During that's that what time. I was curious but about. No, no. I, I think, I mean, because the teeth and stuff were made out of, you know, when you look at the jaws and those kind of teeth-like structures, they were made out of modified like scales. And so were a lot of, like, the armor itself was modified scales. So it's not necessarily, like, here's now super bone. It's probably keratin is what would be my guess or whatever. Yeah, it's just, like, a super thick, ossified, bony plate. Yeah. So I don't necessarily know if it has to, if it's so heavy that it has to comp- be compensated too much in the back. If, you, if you're still following my, what I'm getting at here. Again, kind of going back to what I said was, when you look at other fishes and you look at that ratio to, to body to, you know, from the, the skull measurements to the body length, it looks the same on all these fishes, regardless of how weird they looked, regardless of whether they're extinct or extant, they look just like fishes. And then you look at like the early models of the Dunkleosteus and you're like, it just looks like a, a shark body with, like a Dunkleosteus skull. And then you look at, and you compare that to all these other fish and you're like, yeah, it doesn't match up. Hmm. And why would this one like genus of fish be the exception so early on when it's, when the standard hadn't really been, I guess the standard wasn't quite set. It doesn't make sense for like this one genus to be an outlier amongst everything else. If you look up images, it makes a lot more sense to me. Just looking at the the lengths of it. That's pretty yeah. cool. But either way, I mean, the fish is still super strong. It could eat anything it wanted. It was still an apex predator. Nothing can take that away from it. So, yeah. Cool. I, I had no idea about the suction capability. I've watched some of those recent uh, paleontology documentaries on Netflix or whatever, and they had one eating mm. anemones or not anemones, but um, those a- ammonites. Ammonites. Thank you just crushing them um, <laughs> and i either just over didn't didn't pay attention enough or what to catch the the bit about the the suction how fast yeah. the jaws were yeah yeah 
that was found in a few places that I looked at. It was pretty common throughout the the resources I read. So that's that's cool. Uh, it makes me even happier that I have a tattoo of one. That's right, you do, don't you? Yes. Oh, you were gonna. Oh, did we talk about you doing this one because of your tattoo? Uh, partially, but then when we changed it from nerf to just general change due to research, I I chose right. my current animal. Right. Okay. Well, what is your current animal? Uh, yeah. If we want to just move right into it, my example of an ancient species that has changed or evolved over time is one of my favorite dinosaurs not the top favorite but it's definitely up there and not because it's been in pop culture or is one of the largest but because of all the controversy behind it and i think i have said it before but paleontology really is so fun because we can't say we know certain things 100 percent so there's always going to be someone with an opinion and someone else with a different opinion, both based on scientific evidence and their interpretation of the fossil record, that disagrees. Papers will be published discussing quote-unquote new discoveries and then have a paper published a year later refuting these discoveries. And my creature has had a lot of these papers published in recent years. And without further ado, my dinosaur is Spinosaurus aegypticus. I always thought it was Spinosaurus aegypticus, but I did look it up before this, and it was Gypticus. Um, <laughs> Say that ten times. Aegypticus, yes. Kiss. <laughs> I think this is a pretty common household name these days. Well, at least the genus. If you don't have an image in your head when I mention Spinosaurus, you either never went through a dino phase, never watched the Jurassic Park movies, or haven't had a child go through the dino phase yet. The Spinosaurus, or Spino, as I will probably refer to it a lot here, thank you, Ark. I think it was a habit of every player to always shorten every creature's name in that game. But anyways, Spinosaurus was a new genus discovered in 1912 and later described in 1915 by German paleontologist Ernst Stromer. Before I get too deep, I should say there is another species currently under this genus, Spinosaurus maracensis. Um, as you can imagine, it's from Morocco. Some argue this is the same species, while others say it is different. See, people arguing. It's great. Another discussion exists over the genus Oxalea, Oxalea which includes the dinosaur Oxalea quilombensis. It would appear that very little is known about this creature other than it is from Brazil is said to have looked very similar to the spino but had distinctive differences in the few bones that were collected by few I mean like there's like three but the spino is believed to have lived in northern parts of Africa such as Egypt during the Albion and Cenomanian sections of the Cretaceous period so pretty much in the middle of it from about 133 to 94 million years ago the spino is an iconic iconic theropod dinosaur it appeared in jurassic park 3 though i know there's a group of people that want to pretend that movie doesn't exist but i'm (laughs) going to choose to ignore the haters that movie was released in 2001 and if the spino wasn't popular before then it definitely was after did you guys like that movie it was the only jurassic park i had seen for like years (laughs) <laughs> and I would watch oh. it almost every day after school. <laughs> when so I was you in like hated fourth it. grade. <laughs> yeah. Zach wasn't a fan. Got it. How about you, Spencer? <laughs> no, I loved it. I mean, same thing. That like that movie came out when we were what first ish grade, first second grade. Uh, um, uh, maybe I feel like it came out in the nineties. So. Well, it came out two thousand one. 
Wow. Which feels it it feels like it's in the nineties, but yeah. I guess technically not. It's no, like two I mean years off. yeah. It was a movie with dinosaurs, so how could I not like it at the time? I still like it because it's got dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I guess uh you I bought a very expensive magic card from you that was depicting the scene from that. That's true. Yes, you I did. forgot I forgot about that till right now. Um how but no I uh, we're not going to discuss that right now. <laughs> it was a special edition of a special edition card. So uh, let's just say it was worth several hundred. And I gave a lot of my own collection plus money to get that from Spencer. And I, I value it and thank him every day for it. Um, you should yes. probably frame it. Oh, I am. It is. Oh, okay. Good. So, <laughs> I I said I value it every day, so I it's it's displayed. But yeah, no, I love the movie, and I love all the Jurassic Park movies, all the world, all the world ones and park ones. I I enjoy them. But anyways, back to the Spino. This massive predator was depicted as this imposing threat to the Tyrannosaurus Rex, and even kills one at the beginning of that movie. Uh, side note, I do believe that Rex is referred to as Buck and is not to, not meant to be a full-grown adult in that film. Anywho, the Spino in the movie was depicted as being larger than the T-Rex with a long, more crocodilian-like mouth full of sharp teeth and it had this majestic sail on its back. It walked on land like any theropod in the movie, chasing down the people with ease and destroying fences. Unlike the Rex, though, well, we'll say at least in the movies... It was capable of aquatic movement as well, chasing down the main character's boat with its impressive sail slicing through the water like a shark fin. This creature really had no equal in that movie. But how has the species changed in the last 23 years? Or a better question would be how has it changed in the last 109 when it was first described? Initial reconstructions of the Spinosaurus by Ernst Stromer depicted the Spino like any other theropod but with a sail. Its mouth wasn't anything special, kind of just like a, a carnosaur. Those early models were probably wrong for all theropods, but consistent. These creatures at the time were bipedal. They stood nearly erect, like a human. Uh, and what do I mean by this? Well, they had their tails dragging along the ground with their body in an upright position, Maybe leaning forward a, a bit, but think, think of Godzilla. I'm not talking about the Godzilla from our childhood uh, that I fell in love with. The the one made the one made in America. Think of the new ones being made. If you know, even if you want to think about the new ones being made in America, where Godzilla is completely upright, uh, a typical theropod stance from the early 1900s. In the in the 1990s, theropod research started leaning towards these creatures not standing completely upright, more leaning forward with their center of mass over their hips, and now their tails are off the ground and used as a counterweight for balance. There were some that liked to envision this dinosaur as quadrupedal, but the typical theropod stance during this time was the dominant version of the spino. As more researchers discovered other dinosaurs, such as Baryonyx and Suchomimus in the late 80s and 90s, paleontologists started to see a relationship between them and the Spinosaurus. The longer crocodile shape of the skull started to make its appearance. Then in 2014, a new study involving Nazir Ibrahim, I think I said that right, and Paul Serino et al., uh, there was at least seven other names there. I didn't want to go into too much detail on these names. Uh, these are the two biggest I recognize. And if you aren't aware, Nazar is like 
the Spinosaurus god. And Paul Serino is, like, I've heard referred to as a rock star of paleontologist. He also discovered Sarcosuchus Imperator out in Africa, which also, uh, it's a giant crocodile, but it also lived at the same time as Spinosaurus. They came out with a new model making the Spino an obligatory quadruped, so it had to walk on all fours. Basically, the legs were shorter, the hips were smaller, the animal was incapable of walking on two legs for any sort of moderate distance. The center of mass was well forward of the hips, forcing the spino to sport its body weight with its arms. This representation was long and rather serpentine-like. The side profile always, or always looks like if you took a giant snake, threw a crockhead on it, a sail that <laughs> looks way too big... And then tiny arms and legs under it. Then you'll get the 2014 Spino. And I always thought it looked so goofy from the side. It really just looks like a snake with some appendages thrown onto it. But this model was not without flaws as it was made up of multiple specimens. And I should mention that the Baryonyx and Suchomimus were still being represented as more typical bipedal theropods. As they are shown today. This, this model stuck around for a while until 2020 when more research came out showing the tail had neural spines. Now the, the depictions have this thick tail, less serpentine-like, more fish-like. I don't think that this is the best way to say it, but I know I just said less snake-like, but it does remind me of the tail end of a sea snake. And I don't know mm. if you guys are catching my drift here but those snakes have evolved with the tail capable of propelling themselves through water much more efficiently or effectively than other snakes more surface area to push against the water with and it's kind of like i also think of an oar fish but it's flatter and i don't want to say the tail has fins but like do you know of a better flattened. way to describe this just flattened well i, I you know f there's flattened horizontally and flattened vertically it would then, yeah it would it be would like Flattened vertically. Ver vertically Ventral dorsally. Vertically stretched, <laughs> vertically tapered. Yeah. Yeah. Or like would it be transversely? Is that transverse? I don't know. Well, it'd be it'd be ventral dorsal flattened, essentially. Yeah. 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 yeah that's yeah, ho hopefully they have a an image now. <laughs> Um, the, the tail of a spino is said to be more flexible than previously thought as well, so the idea it was used to help propel itself through the water is becoming more popular. The newer models also beefed up this bad boy. Uh, not only is the tail thicker, but the neck and head and rear legs are bigger. And I think that was part of the issue of the, the, the forced quadruped version is that the back leg, the hind legs were originally too small. And so the spino is no longer depicted as a forced quadruped, but capable of both bipedalism and walking on all fours. And I think that comes from the increasing the size of the rear legs, moving the center of the mass, and allowing the tail to be more of a counterweight than had previously been considered. Actually, Ark kind of did a good job. It didn't have this like tail with uh, like neural spines, but it did have an organism that could go from being bipedal to quadrupedal, so I, I think that's pretty cool. The current model suggests that the Spinosaurus is almost 13 to 15 meters long. That's... 40 to 50 feet depending on where you're looking at and that is definitely longer than any other theropod including t-rex and giganotosaurus which those fall in around the 12 to 13 foot range of length depending on where you look i couldn't find great theories on how tall this animal is believed to have been but 
over time it seems to have shrunk from an estimated six to seven meters tall at the head to about three to four meters tall usually shown with its head at roughly three meters and then its sail is between four to five meters off the ground for comparison the t-rex is shown at around four meters tall at the head and same with the giganotosaurus as far as mass this is a really hard thing for scientists to come up with I have seen estimates from 7 to 8 short tons, and the rex is between 8 and 9. The spino is considered the largest theropod, but that might be more for its length and not necessarily for its mass. I could have missed some size estimations making it even larger than the T-Rex and the Giganotosaurus, but those all vary depending on where you look. And I saw one estimation of the Giga go up to 15.2 short tons. So could you uh, could you tell me what a short ton is? It is the 2,000 pounds. Short ton is the 2,000 pounds. So that's the American oh, okay. unit. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, which is compared to the metric tons, which is 1,000 kilograms. Yeah, they had gigas going up to 15 tons. But a lot of what I could find was like 7 to 8 short tons. But, you know, they could have been 15. I'm like, that is such <laughs> like a difference. I'm just gonna like overlook this for now because maybe they need a bit more time to figure out proper mass estimations the takeaway though is that the spino is a long theropod definitely a large one and a dominant force regardless so its appearance and shape have changed a bit throughout the years but is that all the answer is no in recent years it seems like the overall body plan is being really honed in on but how it lived and interacted in its environment seems to be a constant question Was this giant carnivore with its unique body plan a pursuit predator? Did it chase after its prey under the water? Or was it more of a waiting patient type, one that lets its prey come to it and then ambushes it? Its teeth and crocodilian-like six-foot skull definitely gave away its love for fish. Other spinosaurids as well have this type of jaw that is similar to certain eels and crocodilians called gariels. The end of the jaw has a section of longer teeth in the top and bottom and an area with smaller teeth so it kind of like fills in this it creates this gap in its jaw where its teeth allow the longer ones to kind of fill in and this i guess mechanism this of, of its jaw allows it to it aids itself in catching fish in addition with its front claws depicted as curved to help it hold on to slippery prey the question wasn't so much what did it eat but how did it catch the fish the update the updated spino tail, now showing to be more flexible and capable of propelling itself through the water, has some thinking it swam after its prey, that it lived most of its life submerged and would pursue food underwater. Some argue against this. Shocking. The size of this animal would be too large to swim fast enough to catch prey, and it isn't exactly the ideal shape to move quickly through the water. The opposite idea is that spinos would wait with their mouths in the water for unsuspecting fish to swim by like a heron. There's a key part here of this to imagine, though, to imagine a heron, not a croc. Croc and close relatives can be seen sneakily waiting at the surface of the water with their eyes and end of their snout above, just waiting, you know, to get close enough to prey or for prey to, you know, come close enough to it. At the end of their snout is where the nostrils are, allowing the crocodile to breathe while maintaining its hidden nature. A Spinosaurus's nostrils were not at the end of the snout, but higher up towards the base of the snout, like closer to its eyes. If a Spino tried to do what an alligator crocodile does, it would have to hold its breath or drown because the water would just rush (laughs) right over its nostrils. That's not very convenient for hunting. And 
So spinos could, however, hold their mouth mostly underwater with their nostrils out and wait on fish to come by like a heron, like coming from the top down. And I read somewhere discussing the powerful muscles these dinosaurs had that would aid them in hunting, but they were, but they were up-down movements of the head, not side-to-side that these muscles would have assisted in. And thinking about them hunting from above the water like a heron, snapping up a fish quickly from the top down as it swam past, the fish is going to try to get free with wriggling its body side to side. If you can think of like a floppy fish in the jaws of a spino, the the movement's going to cause the spino's head to go up and down, not side to side. So these muscles that are these dinosaurs are known to have would secure the fish in the jaws and secure the kill. I should note that other relatives are known to eat creatures other than fish, and like most predators, the spino could have been an opportunistic and preyed upon animals other than fish as well. So what is up with the sale? One thing that has remained constant with this beautiful dino over the years is that it does have a sale. It might have changed shape a bit as research gets updated, but it has always been a sale. Some think it could have helped in thermoregulation. As blood is pumped through it, it could pass much closer to the environment and warm up the dinosaur as pumped back through the body. This would be useful when it spends a lot of its time in or around the water. Some think it would have aided in swimming, allowing for sharper turns in the water. Some think that it, uh, it could have been a storage for fat. Perhaps the environment it was in had seasonal resources and needed to stock up in a way in between bountiful times. Others think that they could uh, that, that the sails could have been used in courtship or identifying within the species. It is really hard to say. I think it could have been a combination of you know several of them, allowing it to heat itself while moving through the water, you know, or helping it get a mate. You know how some storks they form like an umbrella over the water. Oh, like so a shade. A yeah. I know that's not what they did because they wouldn't have been able to like turn sideways. It's like turn <laughs> sideways and hey, hey, hey. Well, uh, I guess maybe they could position themselves in between the sun if the sun's not like the middle of the day, right. um, <laughs> between the sun and the water casting a sh- like some shade, and then the, all the yeah. spinal would have to do is just like maybe look to the side. I don't know. You know, it's, it's super uncomfortable. Yeah, or or wait for a fish to swim in front of it to get to the shaded section. Now, maybe there you go. Yeah, yeah, I like it. I don't think it was necessarily a full underwater pursuit predator, but could swim efficiently from place to place to hunt or mate. It just isn't built like most underwater pursuit predators, in, in my opinion. So it is hard for me to picture it as such, or at least most of the time. I'm sure it could, but not you know effectively all the time it is obvious to scientists that this dinosaur was highly adapted to a life in or around water and this might have led to its downfall spinosaurus was not around when the rest of the non-avian dinosaurs saw their end i guess probably you know for the better it would have died out anyways but it was already struggling to adapt to its environmental change and nature tends to favor generalists if you become too specialized you're going to be hardest hit when the environment changes and we're kind of seeing that now with dinosaur or not dinosaurs but creatures animals living in extremes like uh extreme temperature zones or like polar bears like they're you know 
have evolved to live in very extreme areas only. And as the, the polar zones struggle to, I guess, keep ice there, <laughs> the, the polar bears yeah. are struggling to stay around too. And that is what I have on the Spinosaurus aegyptiacus. Uh, a crazy unique dinosaur that we have more to learn about and who knows some of what i said right now could be wrong tomorrow and that's that's the fun of it i i was recently at the science museum in saint paul minnesota and they had a bunch of models for sale you know little plastic dinosaur models mm -hmm. and they had one of the updated spinosaurus models which i thought was really cool nice i think it'd be pretty cool to have like a collection of spinosaurus models you know, starting from when they first made them and just have them all side by side next to each other just to show the evolution of it. I think that'd be kind of a cool display to have. Do you have, have I not shown you mine? No. Oh, oh, oh well, uh, I have that. Uh, oh. Almost exactly so what you, you described. I have. Uh, I mean, maybe you have shown it to me and I just forgot and thought I came up with a cool original idea. <laughs> uh, <laughs> maybe. I, I have a collection of. Zach made me count not too long ago, but I forget. It's close to 30 of those like model dinosaurs that I've had since I was a kid. Or I'd say about 20 to 25 of them I've had since I was a child. And nice. more recently, I've. You know, my wife will buy me one here or there. I'll I'll come across a really cool one and pick it up. Uh, but I, yeah, I have the Spinosaurus that has no crocodilian skull on two legs, standing very upright. And then I have nice. the like theropod typical stance, like I guess more modern typical theropod stance with the crocodilian skull. And then yeah. and then I have I, I I don't know if what I have now is I th I think it's like the forced quadruped version okay. and i sense. need maybe the the most recent one yeah um, but it, it's the one i have isn't as skinny and serpentine like as most of the force that 2014 model sh would be so maybe it's like a in between yeah certainly yeah i'm sure there's another one out there i could get but yeah, I, I, I think it's pretty cool. I've like shown it off to my wife and I'm like, see, this is what they used to think and now this and then this and like So that's that's pretty cool. And your wife your wife's cool, so the entire time she's like, Yeah, no, that's so cool. Yeah, yeah, she's yeah. like, Wow, you're a nerd, but I love you. Like, exactly. <laughs> love, it. love that for you. That's great. Yeah. She saw that and that's when she knew. That's when she knew. Yes. Yeah. That's when she knew. I, I I mean, not to also Agree, agree more so but before we started dating she saw a tattoo of one of my of mine that was a dinosaur and i had all of my figurines out in the picture with it and she said this guy will be someone i slide into his dms and she did and she did and uh best decision she ever made correct so i hope she listens to this mm. <laughs> yeah that's you, you hear that now. actually it's the best decision you ever made <laughs> yeah <laughs> But Zach, what's what's in your list? Uh, yeah. So today, talking about animals and specifically dinosaurs. Well, not specifically dinosaurs. Dunkleys are not dinosaurs, but you know, animals throughout time that have changed, or rather, I, our ideas of them have changed. I think it's a great idea, and we would be completely remiss to not bring up the Crystal Palace Park in South London. 
Uh, this place was built in 1854, so long, long time ago, like oh, almost 200 years ago. This place sits on 389 acres of woodland and contains mansions, Italian and English gardens, fountains, a something called a great maze sports fields for cricket probably soccer or european football but most relevant to our discussion there are 33 life-size models of of what were then newly discovered dinosaurs these dinosaur models are incredibly outdated by our standards but it's completely understandable because like when these dinosaur fossils were dug up they didn't even have the term dinosaur to describe them they didn't know dinosaurs even existed at this point among the dinosaurs that are displayed at crystal palace park is the one that i'm going to talk about today and one of their most iconic statues the iguanodon for those of you that don't know iguanodon was actually the second dinosaur ever discovered and the first herbivore ever discovered or herbivorous dinosaur i should say Uh, in the year 1825, just one year after the first dinosaur, Megalosaurus, was discovered. And discovered in southeast England and described just using partial skeletons, people thought its teeth resembled those of modern-day iguanas, but, like, way bigger. So, when the British fossil hunter Gideon Mantell presented this partial skeleton... Him and the anatomist at the time, Richard Owen, and the OG dinosaur artist, Benjamin Waterhouse Hawkins. I don't know. Can you think of a more British name than that? Nope. (laughs) Yeah, not really. (laughs) Um, So these guys originally discovered, or they originally reconstructed this creature to look like a gigantic herbivorous lizard that for all intents and purposes looked like just a giant iguana with a little horn on its head. It's important to note here that this representation was quadrupedal with, quote, elephantine legs to meet the structural requirements of its massive bodies and a fat-looking tail that it dragged behind its body as it walked. <laughs> just I mean, just imagine an iguana times, like, 100 and make it really, really fat. <laughs> that's, that's what these guys they made a sculpture of. Plus a and, horn. Yeah, plus plus a horn on its on its head, like just like one, just one horn. Uh, it was it's actually really really goofy looking, but at the time that's the best representation of any dinosaur that anybody had because they didn't they were just figuring out these things had actually existed. Uh, which I mean, the whole story of like discovering that dinosaurs existed is a whole nother topic. For a different episode. Um, but this representation of Iguanodon can actually be seen today at the Crystal Palace Park, even though it should be noted that uh, this particular species that they're representing has since been reclassified as Mantelodon. And compared to the dinosaurs we're used to seeing today, it actually looks really comical. So I should <laughs> say that in my research, I found that because they didn't know a almost anything about dinosaurs basically anything they found that even sort of represented what they called iguanodon they're like oh it's another iguanodon and then later they like (laughs) start going through these things they're like yeah like these are not all all iguanodon the ones that are shown at the crystal palace park are actually or have actually been reclassified as mantelodon anyways that's a that's a little side tangent 
Fast forward more than 50 years later, they found 38 complete skeletons of a new species that is actually the type species now for Iguanodon. Iguanodon bernicertensis. And Wait, Zach. What's that? What, is ty- what does type species mean? Yeah. So a type species, maybe you guys have a, are, will be more eloquent in saying this, but a type species is basically the, the species that represents what that genus should look like. Does that make so, sense? What's, what's, if we think about type species, what would be the one that everybody knows about? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I was thinking like Tyrannosaurus Rex, right? Like the Oh, okay. That's a that's a great one. Like like everybody knows that one, but there are other species Which one's of the type though, of it? Well, the Rex part, right? No, was no. that well I thought type meant like like so let's just say I found a fossil. I'm going to name this Shaunicus spencericus. And now, every fossil down the line that we think could be Seanicus Spencericus, you know, if it looks like this first one, that first one's a type fossil, right? Uh, not necessarily, not necessarily, because Mantelodon, which was first called Iguanodon, is yeah, no that's longer I, Iguanodon. That, I'm, I'm, like, very intrigued by that, because normally, that's not how that would have worked. Like, Yeah, that's, that is true, like... It, it usually is the first one that they discovered and named. It, it remains yeah. as Iguanodon. Um, yeah, I'm curious about that, too. I did think about that while I was reading it, but I, I didn't think about it too hard. I was just like, oh, that's weird. Moving on. Yeah, so I don't know why Iguanodon bernicertensis became the type species. Yeah, that's that's yeah, what happened. Um, <laughs> yeah, interesting. Okay. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. All right. Thanks for clarifying that. Yeah, I don't know if we really uh, described it. what a type species was that well. <laughs> uh, I guess I guess Google it if you if you uh, are still curious. This Iguanodon bernicertensis, thirty eight of them, complete skeletons, by the way, were dug up in Belgium, and this discovery flipped our understanding of what Iguanodon looked like on its head. It was found that Iguanodon's forelimbs were actually shorter than its hind limbs. And you know that horn on its nose, like a modern-day iguana, I guess? I, so they put the horn on there because it, what I read is, like, it was inspired by modern-day iguanas. But, like, not a lot of them actually have a horn on their face. I don't know. There was just a lot of weird things going on. But you know the horn that was on its face? Yeah, that's actually a thumb claw or a thumb spike. Uh, so just imagine, like three basically like three or four fingers i think it's four four fingers like your hand basically and your thumb is this giant bony spike so (laughs) that that seems pretty unique to me although the scientists at the time had finally had complete fossilized skeletons of iguanodon to work with they didn't really have very many other fossil animals to compare them with so they turned to modern day extant animals like wallabies and cassowaries. I understand cassowaries, like given now that we know birds and dinosaur or birds are dinosaurs, but I don't know where wallabies came from. Like that just <laughs> seems really weird to me. Maybe it's just like Maybe the, thought the bone structure was 
similar? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe they thought the bone structure was similar, but yeah, they turned to wallabies and cassowaries to provide examples of how this behemoth would have looked. And (laughs) (laughs) but well, looked, moved, and maybe even behaved. And from these comparisons, they devise a new depiction of what Iguanodon was, termed the kangaroo stance. I don't know why they're using all these like Australian animals, <laughs> but um, they... maybe because before you know we we're like we're so used to these animals that we think of in or outside of Australia, and then Australia just has the weirdest looking animals that exist today. So when we started finding the weirdest looking animals that didn't actually exist today they're like oh it's we just gotta look at australia because it's got to be from there yeah Not it's weird <laughs> look down to australia uh <laughs> yeah let us let us know any of our australian listeners <laughs> what you think uh, we haven't we haven't entered australia yet. no we have i looked so, yesterday and we have oh, somebody we in did? perth listening to us shout out to perth all right if you're in perth and listening to this please email us. how many countries yeah. is that now like 10 uh, I think we're hitting every continent except Africa and Antarctica. Well, that's pretty cool. Come, Actually, and Asia. So, like, <laughs> never mind. We're hitting, like, so, so, so <laughs> about half <laughs> half the continent. Our, our listener de- uh, stats just got nerfed. So. <laughs> um, while we're cool. taking this interesting little break here, I did look up what a type specimen is. And a type specimen is a preserved specimen designated as a permanent reference for a new species, new genus, or some other taxon. Uh, the type oh, is the first okay. specimen bearing the new scientific name and is the one true example of the species since they are considered permanent reference specimens. So, yeah, I guess, again, it's pretty interesting that they were like, this is an iguanodon, and they're like, just kidding, it's no longer an iguanodon. We have now deemed this other thing because that was the first specimen that they were, like, referencing everything to. Yeah, maybe it's because it's the first, like, full specimen they found because the first ones they found were just partial skeletons and these ones were, like, complete skeletons. So maybe well, that you, plays into it. You did say the first one that was named, right? No. Yeah, the first one that was named was, like, the original iguanodon. That's no, I the, mean the, in, in Sean's definition. No, the type is the first specimen bearing the new scientific name. So Iguanodon was oh, was bearing. that nine, was yeah. that name? Yeah. Now, now yeah. I'm curious of like why, because there's there's a lot of like drama with fossils like given a name and then they're like, oh, this is actually this, but this one was named first, so now this fossil has to change its name to become this other thing because it's actually, you know, that type specimen was found first, like. There's there's yeah. drama like that all the time. So I don't know. Well, this I, is like the 1800s, so I, they didn't really have very many rules. dinosaurs to fight about. Oh. And yeah, they, <laughs> like they didn't have any rules yet. Like this yeah. is the wild west Dude. of paleontology. <laughs> yeah. So like anything goes, I guess. Interesting. They they they're just figuring it out as they went. Yeah. But anyways, back to the kangaroo stance. Uh, it was called the kangaroo stance because of its bipedal nature. And an idea that the tail could maybe have been used as a tripod like a kangaroo's. I, I pff, Sure. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, and this new rendition of Iguanodon that had it standing upright on two legs was actually really uncanny to the likeness of old images of our mascot, the Megatherium. I don't know if you guys 
have ever looked up pictures of Iguanodon, there's one that comes up really consistently of it standing up on two legs with like very prominent thumb spikes showing its tail. It's, it looks really fat, but then its tail is really skinny kind of, and it looks like a crocodile tail, but really skinny. And it's just like kind of dragging there and it's grabbing a tree, eating the leaves. And it looks really similar to like old pictures of Megatherium that you would see. It's kind of funny actually (laughs) this makeover of iguanodon yeah also features its new thumbs that are literally just big bony spikes sticking out of its hand and while the body of iguanodon is still relatively bulky kind of like a cow the head the neck head and legs are a lot sleeker especially compared to the original statues at the crystal palace park as this was one of the first dinosaurs ever discovered it still has some of the most time in the media including movies and now i don't know if you guys have ever heard of slurposaurs before what (laughs) yeah slurposaurs slurposaurs i had never heard of those before literally like while i was looking up facts about iguanodons and because iguanodon has had so much time in the media it's been represented in the movies a lot and slurposaurs are literally just people took a reptile and they gl- they would glue horns on its head and be like, yup, like they would take an iguana, put horns on its head, and then like, yeah, this is an iguanodon. And they would film an actual iguana with horns glued to its head, and that's the dinosaur. <laughs> <laughs> like those what? old, old movies. Yes, like really old movies, which one of them I think... I think this one included Slurposaurs, but it was called 50 Million Years Ago, which is kind of hilarious because there were no dinosaurs 50 million years ago. Uh, other than birds. Other than other than avian dinosaurs. But Iguanodon was not one of those. Iguanodon was not even around at the end of uh, the Cretaceous. So there's that. <laughs> so I'm looking at this tvtropes.org. The surfosaur trope is uh, as used in popular culture. Making movies about giant monsters, often dinosaurs, is downright awesome. <laughs> just got to say, I agree. Downright. There was uh, just a quick little side story. There is a water park called Waterworld in the northwestern suburbs of Denver. Pretty much right where I grew up. That's where half the people worked in my school as you know, lifeguards and such. And they have lots of big rides. And one of the big rides is this kind of like journey to the center of the earth ride where you sit in this giant inflatable and you go in these tunnels and these caves to an area filled with like animatronic dinosaurs. But while you're standing in line, you know, it's like 45 minutes to get on the ride just like anywhere. Uh, they have all these TVs around and they're always playing these old dinosaur movies. So I've seen a lot of them, or at least clips from them, just by standing in line at this <laughs> ride in Waterworld for half my high school life. So, <laughs> That's hilarious. Anyway, good stuff. I didn't know it had a name, yeah. Serpasaur. Yeah, a Slurposaur. Sean, your, your next tattoo is going to be a Slurposaur. That or just like the original mm-hmm. image of... What's what's the other one? The Megalosaur slash Iguanodon statues. Yes, yeah. yes, very good. Yeah, 
I'm looking at a, a picture of a Slurposaur right now, which is an it's it's an iguana that is just like filmed in this fake environment, probably to make it look bigger, and then they glued Triceratops horns on its head. Yeah, and that is that is Iguanodon. <laughs> yeah, it, it looks like Loki. Kinda, yeah. It's got Loki horns on it. There's but, there's a yeah. gator that I can see. Maybe it was supposed to be a spino or something. It, it they glued like spines on it, and then also gave it Loki horns. Oh and yeah, like that was just awesome. like a straight up made up dinosaur at that point. Like, <laughs> they're just like dinosaur. <laughs> there's even an image of like, I can only imagine a a young sea turtle, but like superimposed over a group of people, terrified that it's going to eat it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's such a good name, Slurposaur. Yeah, I could I could waste a couple hours just looking through Google images of Slurposaurs, just because they're so funny looking. Moving on from Slurposaurs, oh my God, there's one here that says one million years BC. Oh, I look at the same image. So amazing, <laughs> you won't believe your eyes. Yes, one oh million God. BC. That's amazing. Anyways, again, moving on. Uh, this image of Iguanodon actually changed again, at least scientifically, in the 1960s based on some Iguanodon trackways found in Europe, as well as some re-examination of Iguanodon fossils by David Norman. Uh, it was found that the kangaroo posture was very unlikely, even though we still often see depictions of it today where, you know, Iguanodon is standing up bipedally, giving us, like, the big thumbs up. And um, Norman actually found that the tail was likely stiffened and stuck out straight backwards from the body, which, I mean, I've seen it in movies, I've seen it in video games, in pictures, but, like, thinking about how that works biologically, just, I don't know, I just can't, I I just have trouble picturing an actual animal with a tail that sticks straight backwards. But it was... It's theorized that it was able to stick out straight backwards because the bones were actually connected with ossified tendons. So if Iguanodon were to assume the tripod position, it would literally have to break its tail to get there. He he also found that the hands and the wrists were relatively immobile and the three central fingers were kind of reminiscent of hooves. And this combined with the gigantic size and just stature of solidity, I guess, of the forearms suggested that those forearms were, could have actually been load-bearing. And on all fours, and that would have suggested that Iguanodon walked on all fours. And now this, there seems to be a little bit of controversy about this because I saw a whole, a whole bunch of different theories from uh, research suggesting that it might have spent time in both positions or could have even transitioned from bipedalism to quadrupedalism as iguanodons got older. So, like, as babies, they start out walking on two legs and then move towards four legs as they get bigger as a way to maybe support just the massive amount of weight they put on. Uh, I'm not really sure. But I even saw something on Wikipedia about how its top speed would have been around 15 miles an hour. So not super fast, like we probably could have caught it, but it could only have it could only have run bipedally because I guess 
I, I don't know. Maybe the forearms, like even though they're they're big and beefy, they're not beefy enough for it to run, and the force of it running or galloping, I guess, would have broken its forearms. I don't. I'm not really sure. But that's kind of the beauty of paleontology. Like we don't really know anything, and we're always making new discoveries. And I think the story of Iguanodon is a great example of how our, our ideas of what dinosaurs looked like has changed drastically over time from maybe being bipedal fat lizards to, or I mean quadrupedal fat lizards to bipedal and then back to quadrupedal. I mean, it's just <laughs> back and forth, always changing based on new evidence. And I'm excited to see what changes come for Iguanodon and all of the other species that we've talked about today and just the other species that we're going to discover and have discovered in the last couple hundred years and how those might change in the next couple hundred. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, eventually we'll just have dinosaurs roaming around because we will have extracted their DNA from mosquitoes. Yeah. That's really the only way to know. Just clone them from amber (laughs) Yep, and don't stop. Don't stop to think whether or not you should. Just think about whether or not you could. That's a. Um, it's a quote. Yeah, it's a quote. We Jurassic were Park. kind of talking. Quote. Yeah. Quote. Jurassic Park. <laughs> we always do that. Yeah, we were kind of talking before we started recording about. Yeah, Zach, you kind of got the OG. In terms of hey, this thing has changed significantly. I love finding old books and you know postcards and drawings of the earliest dinosaurs back you know in in just even like in the mid 19th or uh, 20th century and it's like oh my gosh these things were so bad looking but the science hadn't caught up with the discoveries yet so we found them and did the best we could yeah i think we figured out yeah i think iguanodon just kind of represents dinosaurs as a whole and how we how we view them uh and how that view has changed over time as we make new discoveries because yeah those really old depictions of dinosaurs they're i mean at least relative to what we see today they're awful and honestly some of the not to bash anybody that did the artwork but this artwork is really bad but they just didn't know they had no idea what dinosaurs looked like what they were and honestly there was I think there was some debate whether or not they actually even existed. I mean, there's still, I mean, some people that think that they didn't exist, (laughs) but um, yeah. Yeah. There's just a lot of controversy behind it. And the, the artwork and the depiction just needed to catch up with the science, which needed to catch up with, I mean, reality for the most part. Mm -hmm. But yeah, anyways, that's our episode on how, our representation of dinosaurs has changed throughout the years. And other prehistoric creatures. And other prehistoric creatures. Yes, not just dinosaurs. Yeah. And we'll see what happens in the future. We'll see what else gets some upgrades, what else gets some nerfs, and some, or just some major overhauls into what actually they look like back then. If we have any cool updates, we'll cer- we'll certainly share them. So, but if you have any cool updates, please share them with us. If you're a paleontologist out there who happens to listen to an amateur paleontology <laughs> podcast, and you discover something and you want to share it with us first, please do. Or or to correct we, us. 
Yes. Or to correct us. Yeah. Give us corrections, very feedback, so. comments, anything. Can you guys tell them how to contact us if they have anything they want to tell us? Well, sure. You can email us at megatheriumclubpodcast at gmail.com. We, I think between the three of us, we check it pretty much every single day. So, yeah. You can also, we've, we've gotten some listener engagement. Some is uh, mighty nice of me to say about it. But some listener engagement on YouTube. So, you know, I, I think eventually when we pick more up on social medias, please engage us there as well. So, yeah, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. And as always, how, how? How, how? how?